0: So, as you all know, after the, uh, over the past two weeks, uh, we've been going through a series on generational dominion. And last week, uh, Brother Lucas sort of laid the framework for us in grounding us in the biblical assurance that we have uh, that Christ's enemies will be defeated in history, that the nations will be transformed towards obedience to Christ, and that his great commission will succeed. Then Lucas laid out for us how the scriptures teach that. God doesn't just think in terms of the individual or even just in terms of the nuclear family, but of gospel advance from generation to generation among households. Basically, the idea that we serve a God who calls us both to go and make disciples, but also who calls us to prioritize the discipling of the next generation, um, starting with our own families and then in cooperation with the church community. Um, sometimes we aren't aware that the impact these uh, sermons of the impact these sermons are having uh, being broadcasting um, out on Facebook and in other places. Um, and I want to read for you some feedback from a man named Barry Kennemer who was listening to Lucas's sermon from far away. And so Barry writes this: "This is the first sermon that I have had the opportunity to hear from Cross Crown Church. As I listened, I was grilling elk that my son harvested, and." Enjoying beef grown on our ranch to feed four generations of my covenant family. Thank you. So wonderful to hear these truths taught so boldly. Greetings in our Lord and Savior from Montrose, Colorado. So you never know where these are going to go. But um, anyways, today, Cross and Crown Church, we will be exploring uh, what is an indispensable aspect of our mission and tactics in pressing the crown rights of King Jesus into all areas of life. And that is the, uh, the family as a biblical trustee family. And what I refer to as the title of the sermon, the nuclear option. Hopefully that will become clear to you all soon, if, you, if it isn't already. So um, when we say that uh, modeling a biblical trustee family is indispensable, what we mean is if we don't model this in our families, uh, it's the difference between, Lord willing, generations from now, a whole new social order having been born and established here in Northern Virginia uh, with ramifications far and wide, um, or this thing potentially sputtering out in a couple of generations maybe. Um, How many churches do you all know that are 200 years old and thriving and and out there today? I don't think we can say many. Um, So when we say it's indispensable, we mean it has to be a core aspect um, of our tactics and strategy that we as a church are embracing um, as we carry out the work of discipling the nations to become faithful servants of God in the kingdom of God. Um, We have to teach this strategy to our children to continue to build on as well. And this is crucial, not only to teach our children, but to teach our children to teach their children after them. So let's just stop there and, and pray. Father, we seek to honor you with our families. We pray, Father, that you would use our collected families here and others that will join us uh, to advance your kingdom here in Northern Virginia, generation after generation. So teach us, Father, from your word today, and fill us with your spirit that we might obey your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, I want all of you to think with me for a moment a question. A number of questions. What kind of family do you come from? And I'm not just asking if you come from a Christian family or not, um, because actually that's not always a good indicator of what kind of family you come from. What I mean when I ask what kind of family are you coming from is more along the lines of purpose and function. So think about was the purpose of your family that you experienced growing up and in your life limited to providing you with food, shelter, clothing, and safety How involved was your extended family, Um, your grandparents, your cousins, your aunts, uncles, nieces, and nephews? How cohesive were they in purpose and cooperation? If you had an extended family, uh, did it function mainly to help you celebrate the occasions like birthdays or Thanksgiving, Christmas, weddings, baby showers, etc.? Maybe to attend your big events, or did it go further than that? So by and large, for the people in your family and in your extended family, think about what was the institution that provided for education, maybe for educational loans, and if someone came upon hard times, uh, who would they go to for welfare checks or food vouchers or medical care, and how was it funded? For the elderly or the disabled or widowed or or orphaned, who was seen as the responsible institution to care for these? What about conflict resolution, disputes? What about getting a loan for a home or a car or a business? Who in your family was determined to pass down to you a skill or a trade or how to profitably run a a family business? And then think, in your family, was there a sense of intergenerational continuity of purpose, responsibility, dominion? Was that explicitly made clear to you or even implicitly made clear? How much of a focus was there on building generationally? So spiritually, vocationally, economically, educationally, right? All these different aspects. Was there much of a focus on or discussion of inheritance and planning for intergenerational advance and dominion? Uh, Was there intentional cooperation uh, with other families towards that end? So just some questions for you to think through. Can any of you think... um, or tell me if your great-grandparents or your grandparents, um, if they communicated any of this to you and if you are aware of what they were building on and if they passed that down to you, or was the focus in your family more to sort of escape the family bonds, to make a life for yourself and sort of hope it goes well, start the next cycle over again, and every new generation after that would continue in that fashion. Or maybe you experienced something in between with a little bit from each. Um, With those questions in your mind, let us now turn to our text and see God's design in creating the first family in the book of Genesis, its form and its purpose. All right. So Genesis chapter two, verses 18 through 24. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky, And brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Flesh, She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So, a number of observations that we can make from this passage as it pertains to God's design for the family. First, in verse 18, we notice that this is a covenantal union which God himself presides over and is witness to. Uh, This concept of marriage being a covenant is also confirmed in Malachi 2.14 where the prophet writes, Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So um, we also notice here a clear deduction from the first marriage here in Genesis. We can see that the marriage does not need sanctioning approval or permission from any civil magistrate to be legitimate. A marriage is a pre-political institution. A state-issued marriage certificate is not what validates a marriage. It is the covenantal union entered into in the sight of God. The second thing to notice about the family here and about the purpose of the family is that before the fall, there was already a very clear mission for mankind. In verses 19 and 20, we see Adam going around and making a... Naming the different animals, um, which harkens us back to God's dominion mandate for Adam in chapter one. Remember that? Uh, I'll read it for you. Chapter one, verse 26 and following. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So, really, we see before the curse. There was work to be done, uh, good works. There was unsubdued creation to be subdued. There was dominion that needed to be taken over and ex- exercised over the whole earth, and not just in Eden. Adam's rule and the rest of mankind's rule over all creation was to be extended everywhere. That was God's revealed plan to Adam. Didn't turn out that way, as we all know. The third thing we see from the verse uh, from verse eighteen is that the very first thing that was not good about Eden was that Adam was alone and that he had no helper in his dominion mandate. Remember, we're talking about the creational ideal here. So to remedy all of this, the question is, what does God do? Well, he institutes the first family. So going back to our text in chapter 2, verses 21 and 22, God takes Eve out of Adam's side and forms Eve out of the very material from Adam's actual rib, right? Bone of my bone. But the reason that she's called woo man is because she was taken out of wo, out of a man. So sorry if that triggers any gender sensitivities in here. But the idea here is that the husband and wife are an inseparable team, and that the woman was given to man to help man in his dominion task, and so they are both to be taking part in the work of dominion in this way the man and wife are so inseparable that they are literally out of the same substance. We actually see that this phenomenon of men and women being of the same substance as the model for us to look at what marriage is, is cited in verse 23 as the actual reason uh, why a, um, a son leaves from his father and mother and becomes one flesh with his wife, the leave and the cleave. So basically every time a new marriage comes about, Another man and woman dominion team has been created. That was God's plan from the very beginning. Replicating man and wife dominion teams over and over and over again. Um, So we already have the idea of children and procreation and progeny in God's revealed plans for Adam to take uh, dominion prior to the fall. Prior to the fall. Now hear this. The command to go forth and multiply includes... Childbearing and child-rearing generation after generation, that's key, from the very beginning, and all of these children were supposed to have been on the same mission that Adam had. Maybe they would have different jobs, like maybe Adam was in charge of naming the various animals um, and his descendants would have been plowing the fields or focusing on mining the river for jewels or building cities or making fine clothes or playing musical instruments and so forth, but they would all have had the same overall intergenerational mission, the same overall Dominion mandate, um, Adam would not have been doing his job properly if he wasn't if he wasn't teaching his children to do the work that he was commissioned and teaching them to teach their children after that. so this brings us to a very important point about what is intrinsic to marriage, something that we frequently miss out on, and it's actually the central purpose of marriage and so. A marriage covenant is more than a bunch of rules and commitments that a man and a woman make to each other, although it is that. So I will love you, I will never forsake you, I will take care of you, and I won't do the opposite of all those things. That is part and parcel of making a commitment to one another in marriage. But marriage actually has a purpose that transcends the man and the woman in the marriage. Now don't get me wrong, there is much joy to be had in marriage and um But the primary purpose of marriage is not to help you find personal fulfillment by having all of your emotional, physical, spiritual uh, needs met by your spouse. A loving spouse is certainly a precious gift from God, but marriage isn't fundamentally about you, and it's not fundamentally even about your spouse. Fundamentally, marriage is about God's purpose, and God instituted marriage for the purpose of helping the first Adam achieve intergenerational dominion. God gave Adam a wife for the purpose of intergenerational dominion. A final observation from verse 24 would be that children are not the property of the parents. This we can deduce from the command for grown sons and daughters who marry to leave the father and mother having reached maturity and then to cleave to each other as a new family unit. What is clear from this is that although children are not the property of parents, they are entrusted to the parents for a period of time. Children are given to you, parents, as a trusteeship. And that's part of what we're going to be talking about when we talk about the biblical trustee family, which we'll come back to later. Now, God revealed this dominion mandate for Adam and gave him everything that he needed for success. But we know what happened. Genesis 3 happened, right? Satan hates Adam, and so he tempts Eve. Satan turns someone who is Eve, was supposed to be a helper to Adam in his dominion mandate, into a person who subverts Adam in his dominion mandate. Then Adam, rather than being faithful to God, rejects God's rule. Adam sets aside God's word. Uh, Adam rejects God's rule. And Adam pursues a kingdom of his own making apart from the one that God had given him, he rejects the position he was granted as rule as ruler under God, to attempt to become autonomous. As punishment, God does not remove the dominion mandate. We repeat, God does not remove the dominion mandate. He does make it harder to achieve. Right. So death, as a result of man's sin, not not God's fault, as a result of man's sin, uh, death enters the world. God curses the ground. Right. Thorns and thistles. Um, He increases the pain of childbearing for the woman. So remember, childbearing was supposed to be the very means by which intergenerational dominion was going to pour forth from. Well, he makes that harder. Um, He curses the whole creation. He curses the harmonious relationship between husband and wife and says that Eve's desires will be to usurp her husband. And that would result in cruelty towards uh, her. Not only this, but future children would be born um, with a sin nature as well. And then God also pronounces that there would be continual war, enmity between Satan and God's people. But then what else does God do? Thank God. Uh, Remember, God would have been totally justified in just leaving things like that, letting us flounder about, and just God would have been totally justified in doing that. But we serve a merciful God. Amen? Mm -hmm. Well, what does he do? He kills an animal and clothes them. He promises that a curse reverser would come from the offspring of the woman. One who would crush the adversary, defeat and defeat death. Eve's vindication. Ostensibly, this redeeming would restore mankind to become new redeemed creations, who would then uh, begin to again resume the project of dominion for which they were first created. Well, as we know, Christ, the firstborn of creation, the new and better Adam, right, who who became a curse on our behalf and came to earth to destroy the works of Satan, and he did, He bound Satan and made it uh, so that Satan is no longer uh, free to go about deceiving the nations. Um, Christ made uh, atonement for sin. He redeemed us, rose from the the grave, established dominion, uh, established his kingdom. And then the Father poured out his spirit so that we as new creations would now be free to obey God's law. As it says in Ephesians, we were created for good works that we should walk in them. And then Titus 2, 14, Christ Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are what? Zealous for good works. So Christ is redeeming us and restoring us to what Adam failed at through our union with him. So as redeemed servants of God uh, who share in the inheritance of Christ, who are filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, who have been made into new creations and who have uh, been restored to resume the work of dominion for which we were created. And given that all of this happens in the context of the family, how, how was the, go- the God-ordained family designed to function? Well, we can summarize everything that we've reviewed in Genesis 2 so far for the, uh, regarding the purpose of the family into one sentence. So, um, so what is that? What is, what is the purpose of the family in one sentence from everything we've heard so far? As follows a marriage covenant before God where one man and one woman are united in a intergenerational purpose. It's a long sentence to jointly pursue the dominion mandate through good works, multiplying in childbirth and raising godly offspring to which they are entrusted. Is that word entrusted again? So that's, that's quite a a broader definition of marriage than we typically hear, isn't it? Um, So with that in mind, what I want to do now is to bring to your attention three different kinds of families that we typically see, that we predominantly see today in society and in the church, and I think you'll recognize them. You may have grown up in one of these families. You may have grown up in a family that sort of takes different parts of these three different families. Um, and what follows is very much a, a paraphrase of Rush Dunian, His lectures on the family. And um, so here are the three typical kind of families that we see. The first is called the atomistic family. Atomistic is not A-D-A-M. That's A-T-O-M. Atom one, talking about the individual. This family is most common in our culture. It's on TV. It's everywhere. This is the kind of family you typically see. In the atomistic family, it's all about the individual. Individuals use the family for their own ends, not the family's ends. The family provides food, protection, Clothing, sustenance, maybe college funds, but really for for the children who are growing up in the atomistic family, the desire is to escape the family bonds. So now that you've grown up in this family, you've gotten everything you need, you've used that family for what your needs are. Now you can sort of chart your own course and completely independent of it. You could say that the uh, prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son in his rebellion, had that view of what the family was, right? Dad, I'm I'm 18. I'm I'm of age now. Give me my inheritance. I'm going to go and use it for whatever I want to do, not given a care about what his father might have had in mind. So that's the perspective of the atomistic family. There's no uh, intergenerational purpose, even on the radar, it's just about me and what I want and how I can get fulfilled second kind of family is called the domestic family, and it's a kind of hybrid with the atomistic family. There is involvement of the extended family to a degree uh, while also retaining this individualistic mindset of the atomistic family. Uh, the extended family in the domestic family is there to acknowledge milestones, sort of like what we talked about before with Thanksgiving and birthdays and Christmas and weddings and baby showers, etc., but uh, when a loan is needed, welfare is needed, schooling, child care, disputes, elderly care, orphans, etc. typically what happens is the state then gets involved and takes the place of the family navigating all of these. Uh, the domestic family is sometimes partially involved in things like this, but there definitely isn't the sense of intergenerational continuity of purpose, responsibility, and dominion. And this domestic family, while more powerful than the atomistic family, is still not the biblical ideal and will not be an effective tool in ensuring intergenerational faithfulness. And look around. It's very common for churches to pop up quickly, maybe get a lot of folks to come and join them. And then what happens in the next generation or two or three generations? Right. So the third kind of family is the is the biblical trustee family. It has the highest, most comprehensive degree of power and scope of the three kinds of families. It seems powerful and comprehensive today because we don't know what it is, and all we see is the state gobbling everything up. But really, it's the very normal biblical family uh, throughout, uh, throughout what you see in biblical history. It's called a trustee family because the members of the family see themselves as multi-generational trustees of a number of things. So they've been entrusted with a, a number of things. So familial responsibility, intergenerational dominion, and faithful obedience across all areas of life, areas of life that aren't delegated to the, to the church or to the state or to the civil magistrate, rather. So in a biblical trustee family, there is an inheritance which is to be preserved. Um, if you... Remember, um, Proverbs thirteen twenty two. a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. So that mindset, that's just one example, is certainly there in scripture. That inheritance is to be advanced and developed for future generations. And it's called a trusteeship because God entrusts the family with children, but not only with children, with property, with gifts and skills, all to be faithfully stewarded, cultivated and passed down for the flourishing of the family and for the flourishing of society in general generation after generation. And because of the larger scope of the biblical trustee family, it frequently finds itself as the target of the state, Um, the target of the humanistic state um, more specifically, which is always seeking to gobble up for itself the roles and the wealth and the responsibility of the family. And many of times, many times it's easy for the state to do this because the family has abandoned and abdicated its responsibilities and all to the great detriment of society. Because you see what happens when the state starts to give handouts is that it undermines the authority of the family in determining, you know, who gets these charitable contributions and who wants to be a leech on society and being able to evaluate that at the, at the family level. But then the state can start to offer handouts in exchange for voting blocks. And then it all goes downhill from there. And we see what the plight of uh, the family is today as a result, even in just in, in Virginia, I actually have to ask permission from the state to be able to educate my own children who have been entrusted to me by God, not entrusted to the state. Jason has some experience with that, I think, recently. Um, So uh, the state also wants us to ask their permission to become married. Uh, The church thinks that it needs to ask the state if it can be legitimate based on its 501c3 status. Uh, We have to pay tribute to the state, thousands of dollars every year to pay for pagan education. And if we don't, we get kicked off our property. So where then is actual property rights? Literally, we are serfs in that sense. And even when we die, it still follows us, we have to pay a portion of the inheritance that belongs to our children to the state. But this is the way of humanism, uh, which always tends towards statism Making the state its god, which we must all worship and pay tithe to. Rush Jr. recognized this when he wrote the following When the state begins to dispossess the family of property and to replace the family as the custodian of property, the marriage tie is harmed. As socialism increases, the stability of marriage decreases. Similarly, as the state enters into another great realm of fam- uh, family authority, the control of children, similarly, The stability of marriage decreases. End quote. So a move by the state to assume the rightful role of the family or of the church is we must understand this, it's an attack on the family, an attack on the church. And we as a church need to do several things. First, we need to exemplify biblical trustee families to the world around us. That's number one. Number two, We need to expose this evil of the state and not act like these things that the state are doing are some morally neutral thing. Or even worse, sadly, what do many even Christians do, is advocate that the state do these very evil things. And third, we need to rally around any and all righteous civil magistrates who are actually willing to end this wickedness. Shout out Dan Fisher. (laughs) And even more, we must recognize that the reason that the state can push everyone around like this is because people are dependent on them for everything, right? We've become dependent on the state for everything and they get to call the shots. A principle of godly rule is that those who serve in society will be the ones that call the shots. That's the way Christ ruled who through service and the church needs to understand that. And, but what happens when that ends where everyone is starts is, is dependent on the state. What happens when that ends? When, when, um, Groups of biblical trustee families and as groups of families in a local church um, begin to take care of our own. What happens when we begin to take care of even those outside of our own communities? What happens when we do it better and more efficiently using less money and using God uh, honoring um, tactics like on uh, principles of, of thrift, incentive and hard work? What happens when we begin building businesses and industries and cultural centers that aren't centered around the public schools? When we build wealth intergenerationally and use it for the glory of God's kingdom with a long-term perspective? You see, the biggest enemy that the wickedness, the wickedness in our culture is afraid of is the biblical trustee family that doesn't need the state. Um, In all those areas where it doesn't belong and which blesses the communities around it without involving the state at all. That's the thing that the state is the most afraid of. Um, If you want to make a little dent against Satan's kingdom, you should try an atomistic family that will make a little dent against Satan's kingdom. If you want to try to do a little more damage to Satan's kingdom, try the domestic family, sort of like a rifle. Okay. But here we go. But if you want to learn, uh, if you want to truly turn this world upside down intergenerationally, it's we need to go with the nuclear option, which is the biblical trustee family. We need biblical families and groups of families and church communities doing good works, which we were created to do as a result of having been redeemed by the atoning work of Christ and having been filled by the spirit generation after generation, teaching our children to teach their children after them, painting a vision for them of what that can be and then walking in faithfulness to our God. The biblical trustee family isn't about patriarchal tyranny or being insular from the world or denying the responsibility of each individual family to leave and cleave. It's about support among these families and partnering with other biblical trustee families to provide the necessary environment from which long-term dominion and flourishing can be sustained and multiplied. And all of this mirroring the great biblical trustees, trustee families of the Bible. Look at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Look at uh, the Rechabites. Look at the emphasis on households in the New Testament, the responsibility of the family to take care of one's own family. And then the church is the last resort. If you uh, get a chance, and I don't have the time to get this into the sermon, but check out Jeremiah 35 sometime about the Rechabites. Basically, they were blessed by God for keeping tactical commands... This this was not law um, that their father had given 250 years earlier, 250 years earlier. And God, for doing this, held them up as an example of righteousness. It's an incredible story. And uh, just think uh, if somebody in, in the 1750s had had said something for your family, you know, and you're still following it today. Like that's sort of the mindset we have in Scripture. So we don't need to find in order to do this in our community. We don't need to find the funniest, most charismatic comedian pastor, Uh, (laughs) though I am so thankful that Jason and the Garwoods moved here. Um, We don't need the snazziest, most uh, shiny church growth marketing campaign. Um, For example, there's a big name pastor in American evangelicalism. He has released a massive course called Breaking the 200 Barrier that for just $397 promises to teach pastors how to get their church past that 200-person plateau. Apparently that's a really hard thing to do. Um, and <laughs> how about we, st- we start actually holding on to the next generation? How about we start with 10 families, we impart to them a passion for God's intergenerational kingdom, teach them to teach their children the same. We go deep. I'm not worried about getting to the 200-person plateau I really don't care about the 200-person plateau. I want to hit the 200-year mark. I want to hit the 2,000-year mark. Um, The numbers will take care of themselves if we are being faithful. Uh, You know how many uh, people would be in a church community if it was 10 generations deep of faithfully advancing Christians whose children don't abandon the faith? Well, the conservative math on that, because I did it, is (laughs) um, with an average of four children each, There would be alive, after 10 generations, 131,000 living grandparents, Okay, 393,660 parents, and 787,000 living children. So again, that's to say we actually don't need to worry about the numbers. If we are faithfully, we are passing it on generation after generation, God says he's faithful to 1,000 generations. That's only 10. He's faithful to 1,000 generations. Um, that doesn't mean the 1,001 he isn't faithful to, by the way. Um, but, it, <laughs> um, but that's, again, 10 generations. That's 300 years. And and yet, the average church in America can't see past five years. Um, and right, what's the point of a 300-year plan if the rapture occurs um, before the Great Commission is accomplished? Um, keep in mind, the children of Israel went into the land of Egypt with 12 families, and they came out of Egypt 400 years later with millions. Millions. We don't need gimmicks. We need men and women who are faithful, courageous in the Lord, and ready to work as redeemed servants of Christ in his kingdom. We need faithfulness throughout generations and to multiply. Multiply by discipling our children first, and then multiply by making new disciples who will start new husband and wife, intergenerational dominion teams of their own. And children... I'm speaking to you directly now. We need you in this fight now, not just later when you're grown up. And how do you join this fight? Well, under your parents' guidance, you disciple each other in how to be like Jesus, especially the children that are younger than you. We need you to disciple brothers and sisters. We need you to honor your father and mother. That's not just being obedient, although it is that, but that's finding ways to encourage and help them around the house because every little thing you do children is part of the bigger mission that we're all on. It's not the grown-ups mission and you're not included. It is our mission. We all have to be in it together. And I just want to say I'm so encouraged and thankful for all of you children who are so loving to my children and the children of other families here. You're you're doing so well and we need you to keep learning skills and learning God's word so that when you grow up and you have a family and a job Um, or a business or become a missionary overseas or whatever your individual purpose might be in God's kingdom, make it a part of this mission that we're on. We as a group will support you and um, as, as a group of families and as individuals um, and as a church to press the crown rights of Jesus into every area of life. And remember children, when you grow up to teach your children, okay? All right. And parents, this is to you and I include myself in this exhortation. What are we doing today intentionally and explicitly not just accidentally with faith in God's promises for the future because we have a future with faith in God's promises in the future that our that our descendants would be blessed by and that might take many different forms but we want them to know our hopes and our plans and what we want to encourage them with over the long term think about how meaningful would it be if your great grandfather or great grandmother had written a letter personally to you for you to open on your 18th birthday, included all about what she was working on and what her past or his past was, but then to describe their hopes for you and for your children after you, or maybe even a recorded video, right? It's it's the new age, we can do that kind of thing. We have a lot of creative people uh, in this room and uh, what other creative ways might you come up with with passing down this passion intergenerationally? Never before has there uh, been as many technological tools around at our disposal to help us to take dominion over things like that. And a last reminder, that family government starts with individual self-government. If we cannot rule over ourselves by the law Word of God, uh, how can we expect to do so for our children or their descendants after them? So that's certainly fundamental. We have the Great Commission, we have the power of the Holy Spirit, we have the fellowship of the saints, we are the church of God, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against her. For Christ's crown and for his covenant, amen.